in the next world, believers will no more be all on one common level than they are now. The Lord Jesus said, But many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Matthew 19:30. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differeth from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. 1 Corinthians 15:41 and 42. In proportion as we now enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, shall we be losers in the next world. The figure which our Lord used at the close of the Sermon on the Mount, the building of a house, is amplified by the Apostle in 1 Corinthians 3, 11-15. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's works shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abides which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's works shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Every Christian is a builder. The foundation upon which he builds is Christ himself. The materials he uses are the deeds and acts of his everyday life. The testing of our handiwork will take place at the second coming of Christ. The works which will be destroyed are those that were wrought in the energy of the flesh. The works which abide and receive a reward were those that were energized by the Holy Spirit and done out of loving gratitude to Christ. There will be a class who will suffer loss of reward, whose works will be burned up, but who will be saved yet so as by fire. We have a striking and solemn illustration of this class in the case of Lot. Lot was a righteous man, Second Peter 2, 6 and 7. But his life did not count for God. Self filled his horizon. He was a worldling, occupied solely with the things of time and sense. Instead of living as a stranger and pilgrim on earth, he went and dwelt in the wicked city of Sodom. The time came when God determined to destroy this sink of iniquity. Because Lot was one of his children, God sent an angel and delivered him. But all Lot's possessions perished, were burned up in Sodom. Personally, he was saved, but he suffered loss. So will it be in the future. Lot was a pattern case. Those who are putting into their life nothing but wood, hay, stubble, dead works will be the losers throughout eternity. F. His conduct will bring chastisement from the Lord. God is holy and sin must be punished. The sins of the believer must receive a just recompense of reward, equally as much as the sins of the unbeliever. The difference between them is not in the fact of punishment, but in the time of punishment. 
The sins of the unbeliever will be punished in the world to come. The sins of the believer are punished in this world, here and now. Such was the experience of Jacob, of Moses, of David. They were chastised severely. This is a scripture which very clearly sets forth the consequence of a believer's sinning. If his children forsake my law and walk not in my judgments, if they break my statutes and keep not my commandments, then will I visit their transgression with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. Psalm 89, 30-33 if God's children walk disorderly and disobediently, they are not cast off or disinherited, but they are chastised with the rod of divine justice. If we sin, we shall suffer, suffer in our bodies, in our souls, in our circumstances. G. His physical life is endangered. But suppose the divine chastisement does not have the desired effect, then what? Suppose that instead of the transgressor humbling himself beneath the mighty hand of God, he hardens his heart. Suppose that instead of confessing and forsaking his sins, he deliberately continues therein. In that case, God will remove him by the stroke of death. In the first part of this article, we referred to the fact that the Corinthian believers, though guilty of the most awful sins, yet were still indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But mark now the other side. Referring to other desecration of the Lord's table, the Apostle says, For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep had died. 1 Corinthians 11.30 Dealing with the same solemn subject, the Lord Jesus said, Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. John 15.2 That is, removeth it from the earth. The believer is to be a fruit bearer, but if he fails to fulfill the purpose of his calling, then God will not permit him to cumber the ground. It is to this the Apostle John refers when he says, There is a sin unto death. 1 John 5:16. This is physical death, and the sin referred to is committed by a believer. See context. We understand this scripture to mean there is a limit to God's forbearance. After the believer has reached a certain point, he then sins unto death. We have an illustration of this in the case of Moses. For his sin of striking the rock, the Lord cut him off out of the land of the living, refusing to allow him to enter Canaan. But that he was not lost is proven by the fact that he appeared with Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. For a Christian to continue in known sin, and especially to remain unaffected by the chastening of the Lord, is to endanger and imperil his life. Hear now the conclusion of the whole matter. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. 
but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. May the Lord give both writer and reader a greater hatred of sin, a greater fear of displeasing him, a greater desire to cleave to him more closely. Preservation and Perseverance the precious truth of divine preservation is designed for the deepening of the Christian's gratitude. It makes known to him the fullness of that grace which God bestows upon his people. It declares that he who has begun a good work in them will continue and complete it. Philippians 1.6 It assures us that nothing shall ever separate them from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus their Lord. Romans 8 35-39 It reveals the blessed fact that the power of God is engaged to protect them from evil and deliver them from their foes. God hath raised up an horn of salvation for us that we should be saved from our enemies. Luke 1 and 71 What a song of thanksgiving should this raise in the hearts of the redeemed. Again, this blessed truth of the saint's security is intended as a divine tonic for our drooping spirits. Fighting the good fight of faith, yet how often the battle seems to be going against us. Were it not for the comforting assurance of God's promises, we might well be in doubt as to the ultimate issue. Living in a hostile world, Satan and his hosts seeking to bring about our destruction, having no might of our own. Despair would fill our hearts were God to leave us to ourselves. But blessed be his name, he does not. His ear is open to our cries, his arm ever ready to defend us. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. Psalm 34, 7. Now, like every other truth revealed in Scripture, the divine preservation of the saints is capable of being perverted and arrested to men's destruction. 2 Peter 3.16 Religious hypocrites, empty professors, baptized worldlings, make a wrong use of it whereby the truth of God is dishonored. They draw from it a peace and joy to which they are not entitled they assume without warrant that they are saved and though they have none of the marks of regeneration and bear no spiritual fruit, nevertheless they persuade themselves that God will carry them through to heaven. Satan has deceived them into thinking that sometime in the past, years ago, they believed in Christ and discovering that the Bible teaches once saved, always saved, they go on in a carnal confidence from which the great majority are never aroused until they awake in hell. Because this blessed truth of God's preservation of his children has been so perverted by multitudes who are not his children, not a few have concluded it is a dangerous doctrine and that it is better for the pulpit to be silent thereon. But this is a pitting of their worthless reason against the infinite wisdom of God. He has published it plainly enough in his word, and so should his servants. 
Moreover, to follow such a course would be withholding from the children part of their necessary bread. The abuse of a doctrine is no proof that it is a harmful one. If all men were gluttons, that would be no argument for my declining to eat any food, but it would be a caution for me to use it temperately. God himself has safeguarded the truth of divine preservation by insufferably linking it with the complementary truth of human perseverance. Nowhere has God promised to preserve anybody while he is following a course of self-will and self-pleasing. It is not in the path of fleshly indulgence and conformity to this world, but in the highway of holiness that his protecting grace is found. If I deliberately drink poison, no praying will deliver me from its deadly effects. If I neglect the means of grace, then my soul will starve. If I presume upon God's goodness and expect Him to shield me when I deliberately run into the place of temptation, then I shall be justly left to reap as I have sown. The little word if is often used as the Spirit's sentinel to protect this precious truth. If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. John 8:31. We are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Hebrews 3:14. If ye do these things, ye shall never fall. 2 Peter 1:10. If that which ye have heard from the beginning remain in you, ye also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. 1 John 2.24 It is not these things which conduct us into Christ, but they evidence that we are in Him. It is because there is a spurious faith, a false profession, an imitation of God's work of grace, that the Spirit so often emphasizes the fact it is only as we press forward along the narrow way of practical godliness that our perseverance proves our faith to be genuine. Walking in obedience to God's commands and precepts is no meritorious condition of earning salvation, but it is the proof that we are saved. Bringing forth fruit to the glory of God does not unite us to the true vine, but makes it manifest that we are united to Him. Denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, mortifying our members which are upon the earth, taking up the cross and following Christ, do not secure a title to heaven, but show that we are journeying heavenward. A steady perseverance in the use of the divine means of grace in running the race that is set before us and in pressing onwards to a closer walk with Christ are the evidences that we are blessed with persevering grace and are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Hebrews 10:39. We need to be on our guard against a one-sided view of salvation. While it is true that one who is born of the Spirit has been saved, it is equally true that, from another standpoint, his salvation is yet future. See Romans 13.11, Hebrews 9.28, 1 Peter 1.5. The Christian has been saved from the penalty of sin, but he is now being saved from the power and pollution of sin. 
He has been delivered from the wrath to come, but he now needs delivering from the assaults of Satan, from the temptations of an enticing world, from the solicitations of the flesh, which still dwells within him. The Christian is yet in the place of danger. Not yet has he entered his eternal rest. So far from it, he is called upon to fight the good fight of faith and to take unto him the whole armor of God. It is the fact that the Christian is yet in the place of danger which gives force to the warnings of Scripture. These are as necessary to him as are the promises and precepts. There are certain danger signals the Spirit has set up and which it is the part of wisdom to heed. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. Romans 8:13. Here we learn what would be the inevitable end were a certain line of conduct persisted in. Such a word as this can only be disregarded at our imminent peril. Carnal presumption may ignore and defy it, but the righteous will heed it. Though every true saint has the infallible assurance that the Lord will perfect that which concerneth me, nevertheless he at once adds, Forsake not the works of thine own hands. Psalm 138, 8. God's promises are the foundation of our prayers, being the ground upon which faith rests. But these promises were never designed to render the means of grace needless. Rather, are they given to stir us up, to make diligent use of them. But a corrupt heart turns even the grace of God into lasciviousness, nor will any legal terrors prevent this. The thunders and lightnings and the earthquake which shook Mount Sinai greatly terrified Israel. Yet, a few days later, we find them dancing merrily around the golden calf. Such is fallen human nature. Almost killed with fear at some awful providence, yet laughing at that fear as soon as the shock is over, nothing but the grace of God can set the heart right and keep it settled. The doctrine of divine preservation affords a stable prop to upright hearts, yet it lends no wanton cloak to corrupt hearts. It brings a cordial to revive the faint, but has a guard to check the froward. That guard, as we have seen, is the qualifying if to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight, if ye continue in the faith grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Colossians 1, 22 and 23. When Christ says that he gives unto his sheep eternal life and that they shall never perish, John 10:28, he affirms their everlasting security. But when the Holy Spirit announces that it is through faith and patience that we inherit the promises, Hebrews 6, 12, we are thereby taught that actual perseverance in the way of faith and holiness must be our evidence that we are of his sheep. A belief in the doctrine of divine preservation is worthless and useless if it be unaccompanied with the grace of perseverance. The doctrine of divine preservation provides no shelter to either laziness or licentiousness. 
If preservation is promised to the saints, then I must be found pressing forward along the path of duty, using the means of grace, or else the doctrine will condemn me. Christians are exhorted to make their calling and election sure. Second Peter 1.10 And this, not by taking anything for granted, but by using all diligence, so as to be assured by adding unto faith, courage, knowledge, self-control, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, love. We are to prove our grace by a growth in grace. We are to evidence that we are good ground hearers by bringing forth fruit. There is real need for such exhortations as the above. Appearance of grace and faith are often found, which sparkle and flash for a time like meteors in the sky and then vanish away. There are some who, like the foolish virgins, bear a lighted lamp and keep up a Christian profession and yet have no oil in their vessels, no grace in their hearts. There are stony ground hearers who receive the word with eagerness, yea, with joy, and yet have no root in themselves. There are some of whom God gives another heart, as he did to Saul, 1 Samuel 10:9, but not a new heart. And such may prophesy for a season as Saul did, and taste the joy which prophets taste, and yet be rejected from the kingdom as Saul was. Many are called, but few chosen. Matthew 20:16. No dependence can be placed upon a past experience, nor a present reformation of life, nor upon short-lived impressions, either of sorrow or joy. A steady and continuous growth in grace and in the experimental knowledge of the Lord Jesus must be sought as the crowning evidence of regeneration. But may not a real Christian backslide and then be restored? Yes, he may, but not without a deep and bitter repentance for his fall. And it come to pass when he heareth the words of this curse, that he bless himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace, though I walk in the imagination of mine heart to add drunkenness to thirst. The Lord will not spare him, but then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy shall smoke against that man, and all the curses that are written in this book shall lie upon him. Deuteronomy 29:19 and 20. On the other hand, whoso confesseth and forsaketh his sins shall have mercy. Proverbs 28:13. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com. 
by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.